3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, through owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands in which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past, present and emerging, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am, it's 7 o'clock on the 20th of February. Good morning everyone. This morning you're here with just me, Max, in the studio. Um, I might be joined later on soon, hopefully, by Kate, but for headlines, but we're not sure. Um, So let me just give you a little bit of a rundown of the show we've got lined up for you this morning. First up, we're going to be hearing um, from an interview that Carly did last week with Melissa Yvonne, who is a human rights lawyer talking about Palestinian resistance and what the annexation of Palestine means under Trump's so-called peace plan. So that interview will take up about the first half of the show, and I really can't wait to listen to it myself. And then at quarter to eight, we're going to be chatting with May Kutsakis, who is chairperson of the Philippine-Australia Solidarity Association, who's going to be talking with us about um, events that have been happening in the Philippines recently, the importance of solidarity and an event that they're putting on this coming Saturday. At 8 o'clock, we'll be talking with Vicky Sentis about um, policing in New South Wales and a recent report that's come out around the this sort of secret blacklist that the New South Wales police have had and sort of how that fits in with racist policing and police brutality more broadly. And last up at quarter past eight, we're going to be chatting with Joshua Badge about some of the transphobic reporting that the Australian has been doing um, and, you know, what we can do to sort of try and get more accountability in our media. But first up, let's hear a few little community announcements and then we might jump into that interview with Melissa Yvonne. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Idioma umebinyo, diaspora blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. We're excited to be launching on March 2nd. Connect with us by following the show on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues.
we jailed black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What you name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am, it's six past seven. And now this morning we're joined on the line by Kate Kelly for headlines. Morning, Kate. Good morning. Morning. <laughs> Hello. Um, Hello. So, over to you. All right. So, first up this morning we have new research um, which was released this morning showing that the majority of the LGBTIA Australian community has been victim to hurtful homophobic or transphobic language with more than two-thirds of the mean called things that, like, I guess you can kind of probably fill in the blanks. I'm, I'm not really going to repeat. Um, but equally as un, unsurprising is that only 41% of cis straight people thought this hateful language was a major issue. And as part of the study, uh, which I think everyone should go and look at, the AFW um, star Moana Hope has revealed that after receiving homophobic slurs on and off the field, leading um, its letter to not attend a live AFL match for almost three years. Um, and it comes on a bit more of a positive note as a rainbow tram has started to sort of zoom around Melbourne to highlight a need for safe spaces for communities, which obviously are, are still very much needed. So look out for it. It'll run on the 48 and 109 lines. And then Lentil says anything has come under fire for using the government's work for the Dole program, which has been linked by Welfare Act activists as slavery rebranded. So job seekers uh, registered with a job active provider will need to need currently need to participate in work for the doll or sort of like another approved activity for six months each every year to continue to re- receive new staff benefits. So this has previously essentially been yet yeah, welfare activists as says it's slavery. Um, one woman on welfare told me that she was told to enlist in the program and she was, um, she wanted to undertake it at, um, and she was asked if she wanted to undertake it at Lentils. And she says it was highly hypocritical because the pay as you feel organization is meant to represent social fairness and inclusion, which arguably work for the dog doesn't. And, uh, in news of the climate, uh, it's still warming. And um, humans are creating up to 40% more methane than previously believed, leaving scientists to call for urgent action in reducing fossil fuels. Um, So this study is huge for two reasons. One, because methane is actually more powerful um, than CO2 over a 100-year time frame. Um, And encompassing that, the federal government recently announced with New South Wales that um, it would be 
looking at gas as a transitional fuel, and it's going to invest a lot of money um, in developing gas projects. But the second reason this is really important is a lot more positive because methane doesn't stay in our atmosphere um, as for a longer time compared to other gases like CO2. So it stays for about 8 to 12 years, meaning instant reduction in it will instantly cool the atmosphere down. Um, and that is it for Thursday morning headlines. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kate. And I guess listeners, keep your eye out for that rainbow tram, hey? Yeah, no, get on in. All right, have a great day, Kate. Thank you for having All right, have a good show. Thanks. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55 a.m. on your dial. You're here in the studio with me, Max, this morning, but now we're going to listen to an interview that Carly did last week for us with Melissa Yvonne, who is a human rights lawyer, talking with her about Palestinian resistance and what the annexation of Palestine means under Trump's so-called peace plan. Today I'm joined in the studio with Melissa Yvonne, who is a human rights lawyer with Vidil, Resource Centre for Palestinian Residency and Refugee Rights. And today she's going to be speaking with us about the annexation of Palestine. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, Carly. How are you going? Yeah, great. So can you start by telling listeners about what this means, the annexation of Palestine? Um, So when we talk about the annexation of Palestine, we're talking about the way in which Israel is trying to claim legal sovereignty over the whole of um, what was once Palestine, or some people call it historic Palestine or mandatory Palestine. Um, And they have sovereignty through um, part of that landmass, and they're trying to take sovereignty over the rest of it. That is Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And how did this term, how has it been politicised recently? Um, So annexation has sort of become quite topical, um, particularly with the release a couple of weeks ago of Trump's so-called peace plan or deal of the century, um, which we would say is actually just a, a validation or a green light from the US to continue what has always been the Zionist process of taking Palestinian land. Um, It's also uh, quite topical in the context of um, Israel itself and the elections that have been going on there. So they're in a couple of weeks facing um, their third election in under 12 months. Uh, And part of a lot of the discourse around that election has been about the annexation of the West Bank. And what has happened is the two front runners, I guess, in that election, um, Netanyahu or Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister on one hand, and then Benny Gantz, um, who is the leader of the so-called left um, in Israel, on the other, and both of them in competing for, you know, the votes, are saying that they will annex the Jordan Valley um, if they are elected to power. Um, and so, when from a Palestinian perspective, this is not really anything new. In fact, this is a process that's been going on for a very, very long time. And so with my organisation, Badil, we've been doing this research over a couple of years, trying to pin down the Israeli mechanisms to show the way in which this has always been the plan and has been already happening for quite some time and sort of say that this is not a new conversation. We just want everyone to catch up with what is really happening on the ground. Melissa, you talk about it as always being the plan. Can you um, talk a little bit more about what you mean by that phrase? Um, 
Yeah, so if we actually go back and look at um, how Israel came to exist and we look at Zionism, um, which is, I guess, the, the political ideology that gave rise to this idea of the Jewish state and the state of Israel, um, it's something that's um, quite uh, had colonisation um, of the land and also cleansing of the Palestinians at its, at, at its very heart. Um, and in that context, um, I think maybe a quote or two would be super useful. So the founder of Zionism was a, a, a Jewish man, although he was a secular Jewish, non-practicing Jewish man called Theodore Herzl. Um, and he, when he was um, creating and advocating for this idea of Zionism, um, said things like, England is the first to recognise the need for colonial expansion and the idea of Zionism, which is a colonial idea, should be easily and quickly understood in England. So um, listeners may or may not know, but in 1917, um, the British uh, Foreign Secretary, Sir Arthur Balfour, wrote a letter to the head of the Jewish Zionist movement in England called the Balfour Declaration. And this is essentially the foundation of the modern-day state of Israel. Um, and so Theodore Herzl, he actually died before that statement came out, but he deliberately approached England um, knowing that Zionism was colonial um, and what they were going to engage in was colonisation of the land and that England would um, understand this. Now, this was a very openly acknowledged um, way of talking about Zionism back then because under international law, colonisation was accepted and understood as a valid practice. Um, it's become much more, um, much less acknowledged in more recent years, particularly through the 1960s when you had all the, the states in... Africa and Asia and the Pacific and through Latin America as that decolonization wave hit um, and more and more states became a part of the international order and could influence international law, colonization became illegal under international law. So since about the 60s, it's never been really openly acknowledged that Zionism is a colonial idea, but from its very inception it was. And the other thing I'll say is um, the intent was always to take all of Palestine, um, and we can just look at the quote, um, a letter that um, a man called David Ben-Gurion, who was the first Prime Minister of Israel, um, he was one of the key Zionist leaders prior to the creation of Israel, um, he wrote a letter in the 1930s to his son, in fact, where, and I might take the opportunity to read it because I think it's useful, he wrote to his son, does the establishment of a Jewish state in only part of Palestine, advance or retard the conversion of this country into a Jewish country. My assumption, which is why I'm a fervent proponent of a state, even though it is now linked to partition, is that a, a Jewish state on only part of the land is not the end but the beginning. This is because the increase in possession is of consequence not only in itself, but because through it we increase our strength. And every increase in strength helps in possession of the land as a whole. The, ablish, the establishment of a state, even if only a portion of the land, on, even if only on a portion of the land, is the maximal reinforcement of our strength at the present time and a powerful boost to our historical endeavours to liberate the entire country. So you can see from this statement that he, he's one of the leaders of the Zionist movement, the first prime minister, he's saying, look, we'll accept the partition plan, because even if it's not the whole of 
Palestine because from a part of it we can reinforce, rebuild our strength and take the rest. And so what you see, um, you can see this in what happened in 1967, which is the Six-Day War that led to the occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. And you can better understand the processes that have been underway since that occupation happened. So when did that occupation start? So that occupation began in in 67, following the Six-Day War. Um, If we take it back a step, um, Israel was created as a state, declared as a state in 1948. In fact, they took um, under partition, they were given just over 50% of the land under the UN's partition plan, and Israel forcibly, the Zionist militia forcibly took um, 78% of the land at that time, Um, and the Palestinians were left with in, in the Gaza, East, Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem and the West Bank, uh, just 22% of the land. And in 67, Israel occupied all of that area. Um, and the interesting thing, or the, the, the critical thing um, from a Palestinian perspective is that under international law, occupation um, is not illegal um, in and of itself. And but it's meant to be a temporary state of affairs. It is also governed by really strict laws of international, we call them international humanitarian law or the laws of war, which set out really strict um, rules around the good governance of the territory that are supposed to apply to the occupying power, that is the Israelis, um, over the occupied people, that is the Palestinians. Um, but what we actually have seen over the last 50 Um, something years is a complete failure on the part of the international community to provide any oversight and accountability to Israel in how they manage that territory. And, you know, some 50 years later where we have a scenario in which Israel, because they have both the legitimate presence, because occupation is not in and of itself illegal, and also the effective control of the territory, that has allowed them to do two pursue two key strategies. On the one hand, their plan has always been acquire the maximum amount of land, and that's the the way they colonise the land. And on the other hand, they've always wanted the minimum number of Palestinians on that land. Um, Forcible transfer is another aspect of the Zionist plan that has always been there from the beginning. Um, Theodore Herzl, the founder, spoke about it. Ben-Gurion spoke about it. And it's reflected in all the plans that the Zionist militia had ahead of the Nakba. Um, and so with the occupation of the territory in 67, Israel's been able to colonise the land, forcibly transfer the Palestinians, and then evolve into a process of what we call de facto and de jure annexation of the land. And so, Melissa, it started with the taking of public land um, and now it's getting to the point where Israel is trying to take private land. Can you tell listeners a bit about that process? I should explain, first of all, to make this really clear to listeners. So under the law of occupation, there are three key things that are really critical here around the land grab that Israel engages in to pursue their colonisation. So under international law, um, first you're not allowed to seize, the occupying power is not allowed to seize and permanently deprive the occupied people of their land unless it's a case of absolute military necessity and it's to be temporary in nature. The second thing that's really critical is that they are to continue to apply the pre-existing laws that were applicable in that land. And in this case, it's the Ottoman and the British laws that applied as well as some of the Jordanian 
um, amendments. Um, and then the third element is that they can derive profit from the land that they administer under occupation, but that is to, to administer the occupation, which is supposed to be about good governance. And the public that they're supposed to administer it for is the occupied public, that is the Palestinians. So Israel, for the first 10 years of the, their occupation, they looked at the law and went, OK, we'll apply international law, we'll try. Um, and they said, so they, first of all, they went around looking for all the, the public land that was already public land before they occupied it and said, right, we're going to take all that. But they said, we're going to use that for our public, that is the Israeli public, not the Palestinian public. So, but there was, there also wasn't very much of this land, um, available. So they also used this military necessity exception and they started issuing military orders and seizing land. And what they would do initially, at least, is establish what are called military nahals or like kibbutzes, little agricultural farms for soldiers on the land. Now, one has to wonder how this could possibly be military necessity to set up an agricultural farm or a, a retreat for soldiers serving in the occupied territories. Um, but nevertheless, they did this. And then what you would see happening is that very quickly, um, ordinary citizens would move in and occupy that um, encampment, and then it would become a proper established settlement. Um, and they did this for 10 years and set up a number of colonies in this way um, until it came to 1979 and um, a Palestinian community up uh, near Nablus challenged this as, men, as just about every community did in the taking of their land, um, of their private land. Um, and they took it to the Israeli High Court. But the settlers involved, the colonisers involved in this land, also decided that they wanted to be added to this legal action. They said, we're not here for military purposes. We're here for political ideological purposes. And we're certainly not here temp temporarily. We are here permanently. And it was because these colonisers involved themselves in the legal action that the Israeli High Court found that, no, indeed, using the, mili the military necessity argument cannot be used to establish settlements. These settlements are not for military purposes, they are for political purposes and therefore it's incompatible with the law of occupation. So Israel, rather than um, uh, impeding their plans, just shift course. Um, they undertook a, they, they looked at the laws, so this is where we come back to the Ottoman laws, um, and they looked at them and said, okay, how, how can we get more land? So they, one thing that's worth explaining here is one of the, Ottoman law is quite complex as it relates to land, but they, they categorise the land in a, a number of different ways. And the critical one here is the agricultural land, um, which is the vast majority of the West Bank. Now, under Ottoman law, um, the agricultural land was generally community land and it was in the community interest to have it as community owned. So the state held the ultimate ownership of the land. Um, but... Uh, individuals could cultivate that land for a period of 10 years or more. And if they cultivated it for 10 years or more and they paid a fee to the state, they could acquire essentially the private ownership rights to that land. Um, and they could pass that land on to their children and through inheritance laws and all that sort of thing. So it's, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's ownership of that land. But there was an old law that subsequently um, changed over time. It changed under the British that had, had said, if you cease cultivating that land for a period of three years or more, ownership reverts back to the state. 
Now, that disappeared out of the law well and truly before the occupation happened. But what Israel did was they went back and went, okay, first of all, you have to cultivate the land for 10 years or more in order for it to be state land. So they did a survey and figured out all the land that hadn't been cultivated for 10 years or more and said, well, then that's not private-owned land, that's state land. We're going to take that. Um, the problem was this, this survey also said to them that there is just not enough land or land that can be called state land for you to pursue the settlement enterprise that exists. So you're going to have to find another way to take the land. Um, so what they also then did was stop apply. They, they went back and saw this three-year rule and went, okay, fine, we'll use that three-year rule. Um, and so what you see even today is that Israel not just seizes the land that hasn't been cultivated, but they also actively deploy mechanisms to stop people from accessing their land to cultivate it in order that after three years passes, that land reverts. They can declare that that land reverts back to the state. Now, this is a complete manipulation of the law, but this is what they do. And so in actual fact, this is a super significant law as in, you can drive around the West Bank and you see the rolling hills and you can see, you start to understand the significance of the olive tree when you're driving around or the citrus trees um, because these are, these are indications that the land is cultivated and claimed and these are also ways of cultivating the land that don't require constant access. They require access once or twice a year. Um, and so this is where the, the olive tree is not just inherent to Palestinian culture and identity, but it's also critical to the act of resistance and to holding on to the land. Now, Israel had used this mechanism um, and taken um, huge parts, more than huge parts of the, the land um, by the 80s. Um, so by the, the mid-1980s, Israel had actually taken about 42% of the land in the West Bank through this mechanism. Um, and so it was running out of land it could possibly take in this way. So then what you have is we move on to the 90s um, where you have the signing of the Oslo Accords. There's, you know, a, a peer, the appearance of an agreement. Um, so Israel needs to step back from its processes of colonising the land. Um, but... Of course, its intent was never to stop colonising the land, so they pursue a different mechanism. And what we see emerge in the 90s and the 2000s is this policy of establishing illegal outposts. And so what would happen is that you would get, there'd be a colony that's well-established, got hundreds, maybe thousands of people living in it, and then a ca- there'd be a hilltop nearby and a caravan would pop up. Um, and some of the colonisers have struck out and set up a caravan and they're laying claim to that land. And then what started to happen really um, obviously is that these caravans would be very quickly connected to electricity. They would have water. They're still caravans on a hilltop, but they've got electricity and water and the military is guarding them. Um, and people were suspicious enough of this. And sure enough, in the early 2000s, a couple of reports came out. So in 2005, a, a report leaked which um, showed that... Um, Israel was well aware that this was happening. Um, and then another report leaked in 2009 that showed that Israel was not only aware that this was happening, was actually factoring it into their planning and all their decision-making. Um, so these two Israeli documents that leaked showed that actually the Israeli government was um, advising colonisers of where there might be a 
possibility of taking public land or private land that had been uncultivated. They'd done their assessments and they were sort of helping this along and then connecting um, these these so-called outposts up um, to electricity and water. Meanwhile, the, the little Palestinian village next to it um, struggles to get regular water and might often not have electricity, but these caravans do. And these caravans, you have to understand, go from being a, a handful of caravans one year to you know maybe five, ten years' time. They are almost like full-blown cities with massive high-rise buildings, thousands of people living in them. Um, and then, so what we, we saw actually was an evolution. So this was the way they started taking, spreading out and taking the private land, but ambiguously public land. Um, when these settlers are on the land, then the Palestinians can't cultivate the land and then the three-year rule kicks in and then there's an argument for the state land declaration that then, you know, of course, is still problematic under international law, but they take this this land. And so what we then started seeing was a bypass or a shortcut process being implemented in the late 2000s and more this last decade where the Israeli government sort of retrospectively approves these settlements and they become so-called legal or authorised is probably a better word um, by the government. Now, the problem the government was having was that the, the Israeli high court still said you can't take private Palestinian land. So unless the government could run its argument that the land was state land or public land because, you know, it wasn't cultivated or um, for whatever reason, when the Palestinians challenged it in court, there were very, very occasional wins where the court said, no, 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 that is private Palestinian land. They can prove it and you must evacuate the the settlers, the colonizers, um, and this you know let's let's be clear there weren't very many wins, but there were enough wins, and every time they happened, this would cause outrage, particularly amongst the the settler colonizer community. Um, and so, in recent years, what we've started to see is um, an attempt to try and now find a mechanism to take the private land as well. Um, and I'll come back to that a little bit later when we actually get to the detail of the annexation that's happening. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 7.30 and you're listening to an interview that Carly did with Melissa Yvonne, human rights lawyer, about Palestinian resistance and what the annexation of Palestine means under Trump's so-called peace plan. Stay tuned for part two of that conversation now. And Melissa, you've worked in Palestine, you've been on the ground. Can you talk us through the resistance of Palestinian people? Oh, gosh. Um, this is kind of a difficult one, but I have to say um, there's, a, there's a phrase or a word that's always used in Arabic and in Palestinian circles called samud, um, and it means um, steadfastness in English. And I've actually genuinely never fully understood that word until I witnessed some of the stories that I saw in Palestine of literally like existence is resistance. Um, and so I'm like, the other half of this equation is, is not just the colonization of the land, but the way in which Israel, alongside this colonization, actually tries to forcibly transfer Palestinians off the land. Um, and that's where these stories of resistance really start to come out. So in some of these communities that are facing this massive colonization and loss of their land, they're also you know, the wall goes up and they get cut off from their land. Um, 
they, you know, the Israeli soldiers engage in regular night raids um, and why they always seem to have to arrest people at night, um, sort of I don't understand it other than it's actually not about the arrest at all, it's about terrorising the population. Um, so um, anyone that engages in any kind of throwing of, you know, a stone or writing something on Facebook risks having, you know, their whole family's house or community raided by the Israelis. Um, and these are often very brutal raids that happen. Um, as in, um, they don't just come into the house to try and arrest that individual. They come in and they destroy the whole house. Um, and so when you're faced with um, this, and the other thing, actually, um, I also would hear stories of Palestinian men and women um, going to cultivate their land because that's essential not not just to retaining the land but also to their livelihoods they go to you know um, harvest the olive tree or the fruit or whatever they need to do and you in certain colonies um, there are particularly aggressive um, colonizers that come down and they don't want Palestinians cultivating their land and so they terrorize and they come down they might chop down their trees they might attack them i heard one woman she came down she was just harvesting the olives and next thing she knew she'd passed out on the ground and she woke up and her head was bleeding because a colonizer had come down with the military alongside giving cover not to protect the palestinian population to whom they owe protection obligations but to protect the colonizers who are coming to engage in the violence um, and the vandalism um and she was now terrified to go back to her land, but she understood, you know, the importance for her family to have an income and also to retain the land. Um, and so she would often, she would go accompanied if she, and she wouldn't go as often, but she would go accompanied if she went. Um, or another family that um, their land um, is on the now on the other side of the wall. Israel built the wall. Um, a, you know, and cut them off from their village, just one house on the other side, and they just assumed this family would give up and pack in, pack it in. Um, no, this family said, no, this is our land. Um, they, they successfully, I believe for memory, they successfully fought it in court to retain their right to the land, and so they stayed in the house, the, the wall went up, and they said, well, you need to provide us with a, a wall, uh, with a door, a way to access our land. Um, and I think they, they did actually get quite a bit of awareness to their case. The European Union got involved and other countries got involved and they got a lot of solidarity. And that solidarity, what it's achieved is a massive military gate in the wall that has a tunnel through to their land. Um, and they live isolated on the other side of this wall, but they're still there. Um, they require coordination with the Israeli military in order to access, in order to have visitors access their land. Um, so they have to ask permission several days in advance to have visitors to their house. And the kids, when they go off to school, um, generally have no way of contacting their family. They, they go off to school and they come back. And so the family um, last year, uh, I think it was last year, they installed a bell system so that the kids could finish school and come to the big military gate which you can't see the house through the military gate at all and they had a bell that they could ring so the parents would know to come and open the gate um, and as punishment for putting this in place um, the family during Ramadan last year was shut in for eight days um, and they the community, as you know, an act of unity with them, um, set up a, the, ta the dinner table for iftar, 
um, which is the breaking of the fast during Ramadan. And on one side, the community sat ate, eating, and on the other side of the military gate, the family sat eating, but they still could do iftar together. Um, but also during this period, um, the Israeli soldiers even raided their house. Um, one of the women in the house was six months pregnant, and a female soldier actually beat her so badly she miscarried. So you meet this family, and, like, they're still there. That's still their land. Um, and I listen to this story, and um, you just go, that is the, the, the absolute definition of existence is resistance. And then, you know, they do a lot of advocacy, so people like me come and hear their story and then come back and share it with more, and the, the word goes out. Um, so there, there's something in this, but it's also a, a really good example of the way the international community fought to keep these family there and have access to the land. And then they go. Uh, the EU is no longer necessarily involved. And you're like, what kind of solution is this for one family to live on the other side of a great big military wall with a gate? Like That's not an end. Mm. But that's the end of the international solidarity with them. Um, so there's so many stories that I could share around, around just simple acts of resistance. And you go, this isn't okay. Mm. Um, what's what's going on like it's just wrong absolutely and thank you so much for sharing that story as well because sometimes we can get so caught up in just the politics and the news and the changing of legislation and the changing of government policies but at the end of the day it's real people's lives that are affected and the land that's being affected um and yeah so fast forward now to february 2020 and the UN um, is now drafting a resolution condemning the Israeli annexation in Trump's peace plan. Can you talk us through what Trump has proposed? What do I even call it? Um, it's not a peace plan. It's um, a green lighting to the taking of uh, just about all of Palestine. It's, it's, he thinks it's a a plan that will lead to the establishment of a Palestinian state, but it's a Palestinian state fragmented into these tiny concentrated pockets of land. There's so many conditions on the Palestinian people before they'll ever even get that. I mean, it's just, it's so absurd what he's offering. Um, and it's a green light to apartheid. Um, so what it, what it's setting up is, um, you know, Palestinians are, Already, if we're talking 1967 borders, we're talking 22% of what was mandatory Palestine. Um, I don't even know the percentage of land that we're talking about now. It's so minuscule. Um, and uh, it's setting up a system in which Jewish Israelis are free to move and thrive and prosper and develop themselves, and Palestinians have to somehow create some semblance of cohesiveness when they're completely disconnected um, from each other. There's no land really left on which to engage in the agriculture that was always at the the heart of Palestinian society. Um, how do you have a co cohesiveness as a people when you have to cross checkpoints and borders? And, and let's be clear, Israel will protect even those borders. Um, and... It's the complete demilitarization of the Gaza Strip. And, I mean, there's, there's so much in it that's absurd. The other thing that um, has also been proposed is that there um, are towns, there are Palestinian towns up um, inside the Green Line. So these are people we're talking about in, in Israel 
um, and they have Israeli citizenship. And Israel has, is planning to redraw the boundaries and add them into the Palestinian area, um, which would strip them of their citizenship that they have, um, or without consulting them. And, I mean, that's not to say they necessarily want to be Israeli, but... Um, and the vast majority of them would not want to be um, necessarily Israeli citizens. But this is the so-called um, only democracy in the Middle East that is very happily preparing to strip some, I think it's about 300,000, I might be wrong on that number, but 300,000 Palestinian citizens of Israel of their citizenship um, and pushing them into what, I think has no chance of, you only have to look at history, you only have to look at the petition plan and then occupation and then the Oslo Accords and this. I mean, it's just, it's not going to get anywhere near what is a sustainable and durable solution. Um, yeah, so Trump's Trump's peace plan, I mean, I think the other thing I will say is um, while I don't necessarily think it was a surprise to anyone um and and I, I keep saying that the process has always the plan has always been this. It's a continuation of what was already existing. There's still something quite different when you start to see it in writing. Mm. The sheer racism that is written into this plan and it is actually changing the situation on the ground. Um, there have been protests in Palestine. There have they're a bit sporadic, but it has led to the death of you know some Palestinians. Um, including children, um, and a lot of suppression has been going on. Um, I haven't, in my time in, in Palestine in the last two years or so, um, I've never seen the military take over Bethlehem like they took over Bethlehem just last week. Broad daylight, hundreds, it felt, well, it felt like certainly tens of um, military jeeps and hundreds of soldiers just all over the streets of Bethlehem. Um, and it moves the goalposts yet again, um, and again with this narrative that the Palestinians are being unreasonable. Mm. Um, and what are they being offered? Absolutely nothing um, other than legalised apartheid. And what is it that listeners here on this continent can do to support Palestinian resistance? Um, I mean, in 2018 and then early 2019, we saw a lot of protests here when the Australian government wanted to change the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We can't be quiet. I mean, I find this a really hard question to answer. It's something I've been searching for in the last, particularly in the last few months. Like, what is the answer? But we have to make our voices heard because there's absolutely no justification for what is happening to Palestinians. Um, I think we have to be loud, make our voices heard, make the government understand that we don't accept this and start engaging in acts of, of solidarity. Go there, go and visit it. Um, it's a beautiful place to visit. I think, I think it's really difficult to understand the sheer reality of it without seeing it with your own two eyes. I would so encourage people to go. You will have an amazing time. Palestinian people are some of the most hospitable, generous, warm and welcoming people you could imagine. So um, I think that's also critical because I don't think we realise the level to which we have internalised the narratives that go around and we, even if we don't intend to, dehumanise um 
people or at least have biases and perceptions. I mean, I, I married a Palestinian, but I still had things I had to work through. Um, and so I think go there, hear the stories, feel it, um, and then do everything you can to act in solidarity. And then the other thing I'll say is lining it up with other solidarity movements. I think all these things are interrelated. So First Nations people, I think, understand better than most Australians the reality of what, what this is. Um, and I think acting in solidarity. But even when we're talking about um, climate change and the climate action, I think it's all related. If you want to understand the Middle East as well broadly, you need to understand water and resources and the way in which that is playing into the struggle that's happening there. Um, I mean, one really simple example is the reason that there is a peace treaty between Jordan and Israel is the need for Jordan to get water. And Israel has more of the resources because they have the Galilee um, and they've also unlawfully annexed the Syrian Golan Heights where there are a huge amount of resource, water resources. Um, so like when we talk in climate action, it also affects the reality um, there. So, yeah, I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer, but it's, 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 it's what I've got. Um, and, yeah, we have to start mobilising and actually calling for something different. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think that what you've talked about today, there are just so many similarities with what the Australian government has done too, to take land from Aboriginal peoples, um, like just off the top of my head. I just think that one of the underlying reasons of the Northern Territory intervention in which the Australian government also said that um, they were having a military intervention mm-hmm. um, into yeah, a lot of things that were occurring in the Northern Territory, um, but they used that legislation and that policy to take a lot of land from Aboriginal peoples. Um, And I think just lastly, Melissa, can you please tell um, listeners how they can follow the work of Badil? If you you want to follow anything um, about Badil, we have two Facebook pages, one in Arabic and and one in English. Um, So you can find them, Badil, B-A-D-I-L, Resource Centre. And um, we also run trainings. So if you wanted to come over and actually do a course on international mobilisation and join um, the solidarity work, um, that's a real. We ran our first course last year, and I think a lot of people would be really interested. It was a super interesting group of people um, that came together and really, really interesting. At times, heartbreaking. At times, just anger-inducing content. Um, but. Yeah, really great crowd of people that came along to that. So look out for that this year as well. Fantastic. Um, And, yeah, we'll definitely update listeners when we find out about when that's happening. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us on 3CR. Thanks so much for having me, Carly. Thanks. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Idioma umebinyo, diaspora blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. We're excited to be launching on March 2nd. Connect with us by following the show on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues. This is to be, ooh, right.
You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55 a.m. It's 10 to 8, and earlier this morning we were listening to an interview that Carly did with Melissa Yvonne, human rights lawyer, about Palestinian resistance and what the annexation of Palestine means under Trump's so-called peace plan. Up next, we're chatting with May Kotsakis, chairperson of the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association and convener of Philippine Caucus for Peace, who's going to be letting us know about a forum that's happening this Saturday on the peace process. Good morning, May. Good morning, Matt. Good morning to all. (laughs) So, May, to jump right in, maybe let's start with the forum that's happening this Saturday. Can you let us know what it's about? Oh, yes. Uh, On Saturday, 22nd of uh, February, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, we are holding a peace forum. This forum is um, to give um, different organizations a chance to explain what they do and also to, to explain the CASER, which is the Comprehensive Agreement on Social and Economic Reforms. That is the second substantive agenda of the supposedly the peace negotiations between the Philippine government and the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. So that is a, a very important agenda, which uh, many, you know, especially the Philippine military is very opposed. And you mentioned then, you said, you know, the supposed sort of peace, peace negotiations. Can you explain for us some of your concerns and Paz's concerns about these, the, the so-called peace negotiations that are happening? Oh, yeah. the, the, we, we support the peace negotiations because uh, finally, uh, the, um, if that will go through and there will be this uh, agreement will be signed and it will be implemented, then it is going to solve a lot of social and economic problems in the Philippines. Because for one, the CASER is going to implement a national industrialization and also land reform, which will um, you know, distribute uh, land to the landless, to the plenty of peasants and the farmers in the Philippines that are until now still struggling to, to own a piece of land. And... It will also uh, implement um, national industrialization. So um, at the moment, you know that the Philippines still have no basic industries. We Most of the income of the Philippines now is derived from the uh, remittances of the overseas Filipinos and from services, services industry. So um, the unemployment is so big, underemployment is so big, and that has been ongoing for a very long time. And uh, this has been the clamor of many Filipinos to industrialize, to create more jobs. So we we don't have to go overseas to find jobs to support our family. So we are very, we support that the peace negotiations will go through. But then there are, um, you know, of course, the, the government, especially the, 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 the rich people, the bureaucrats, um, many of them, they don't like that to go through because, it, well, it will affect their mm-hmm. billions and millions, you know, <laughs> they don't want to share. And the Philippine military is very opposed to it as well. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why the Philippine military is very opposed to it? It's it, it really, um, it, it, it's really strange because uh, I don't know if they have actually studied the agreement because that has been uh, publicized, you know, I mean, they should have read it very well. But I don't know if you have, um, if you knew about uh, 
the tirade Philippine military who came to Australia to, ga- to give a briefing to the Filipino community in Melbourne. Um, that, that happened last February 4, and a certain general, uh, Major General Antonio Parlade was the one who, who gave the, the briefing. We were actually surprised because it says in the invitation, which was um, sent by the uh, Consul General, that it is supposed to be about peace, about the initiative of the Philippine government on peace, you know, in the Philippines. So we thought, well, this is going to be good. So we were expecting that maybe it's about the continuation or the resumption of the peace negotiations. But then the the presentation is nothing about peace. The presentation is about uh, maligning, um, uh, red tagging, attacking the different organizations, uh, civil society organizations, human rights organizations, um, even um, organizations that that advocate and support, uh, you know, people, the human rights advocates like Arapatan. And there were also four, there are four Australian that were also mentioned. When I say Australians, they are Australian nationals because there are plenty of Filipinos who are already Australian citizens, but there are Australian nationals who were also mentioned. So it has nothing to do with peace. And Parladi has opposed so much the Kasser and a lot of lies that he said. He said that if the Kasser or this agreement will push through, then those small businesses in the Philippines, like the Filipino businesses, they are going to be taken over. They are going to be. So it is exactly the opposite of what the Kasser is talking about. And he, he continued on, you know, on calling this organization, like mentioned the Gabriela, which is a Filipino women's organization that actually addresses and supports um, various issues on women, including victims and survivors of family violence. It mentioned also Migrante, the Migrante organization, which is international. And we have a Migrante Australia here. And Migrante addresses and help those issues of temporary migrants, especially the workers, international students, uh, support them, addresses their issues. And it is included in Parladi's presentation and attacked them. Uh, it also attacked the international legal people struggle. It is an international uh, formation, and we have a chapter here in Australia, which International League of People Struggle Australia. And Parladi said that these organizations are front of the Communist Party of the Philippines. So he, he talked about a uh, communist part of the Philippines, like communism is like an evil, something like that. So he, mm-hmm. he actually sort of asked the people, you know that the way the the presentation was uh, was given, he's saying to, you know, these people are enemies. You know? So if you know these people to attack them, they are enemies. It's actually divisive, you know. So many people there were sort of shocked of the presentation. Mm-hmm. So that what we were expecting to talk about wasn't actually a. Uh, it's about peace. It's about. You know, they're declaring war on these um, organizations. And these organizations that have been known to be helping the people, to be supporting the people. So, you know, anyone who would listen to that organization, I mean to the 
to the uh, presentation and who who know about this organization will will assume that the Philippine government look into people or into organization helping the poor, helping those oh, to those who cannot speak for themselves, supporting the issues to support the you know the um, by human rights victims. Mm. They would they see them as terrorists. Is a terrorism yeah. to. To, to to do such things, so it you know I mean if if people has uh, no idea of the the um, has no idea of the uh, intention the real intention of Parladi and the Philippine military and the government they actually think that uh, these people that they are talking about are actually terrorists. You know? mm. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Our guest is May Kotsakis from the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association. And May, you actually joined us on the show last year to talk about sort of exactly what you've mentioned now around the the way in which uh, human rights organisations in the Philippines and unions and workers' organisations have been, you know, under attack from the government um, and just, you know, treated as though they're terrorist organisations. I wanted to talk about some, you know, news that we heard coming out of the Philippines recently, um, how we heard that there were brutal attacks on LUMADs by paramilitary groups in late January. Would you be able to let listeners know a little bit about that, if possible? Uh, oh yes, um, this uh, this this compound, which is uh, Haran, we call it is a compound of the Uniting Church of the Philippines. In uh, this is in Davao, they have been um, giving refuge to the indigenous, uh, you know, people in southern part of the of, um, Philippines, which uh, are the Lumad. So the Lumad is uh, different, have different different indigenous groupings. But they are the general term for indigenous peoples in Mindanao. So they have been giving sanctuary to these people because their places have been militarized. They have been attacked. Their schools were destroyed by the military. Their uh, their houses were destroyed. The military actually stationed in their in their place. So so they they left. So they they went to the city and they have no place to stay. So the the United Church has um, given them sanctuary in this place, and that place was attacked on January 15 by Alamara, and Alamara is a paramilitary which is trained or, or formed by the Philippine military. They are being paid by the military, and they they the attack was really brutal. They destroyed even the walls, you know, then these uh, helpless people. And actually, in the presentation, it was really, you know, the party uh, actually accepted because he said he justified the attack. So he accepted that the Alamara, the attack was sanctioned by them because he said that the reason that the compound was attacked is because those indigenous people are being taught to be communists, to be terrorists. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. You know, so... Um, it was really very, you know, very, you know, um, outrageous to, to see that even the sanctuary, the refuge of these people are, instead of the, the Philippine government to be happy, you know, they, they have no place to go. It's the responsibility of the government to secure them, to ensure that they are safe, to ensure that they have a place to sleep. Mm. After they have attacked their place or their uh, dwellings, their schools, now, they attack the sanctuary. Mm. 
and they justified it as because they are being taught communism. They probably call the the schools that they have uh, attacked, they have uh, you know bombed. They he called them little communist schools. And May, unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap up our interview in just a moment. But before we do, what can listeners do to join their voices to the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association in calling out the oppression of the Filipino government against Indigenous people, workers, human rights organisations and others? We have actually uh, several uh, events that uh, we are organising. We have a uh, we are organising a peaceful uh, uh, lobbying and peaceful protest in uh, Canberra to to raise the issue to the Australian government about their military support to the Philippine government because we believe that if the Philippine military is the perpetrator and there has been a lot of recordings of them attacking, you know, helpless, helpless people, they are the perpetrator of human rights violations, then it is not right for the Australian government to be supporting the Philippine military. So we are, we have a, uh, a trivia night that we are organizing on the 7th of March and we are doing it in the Uni- Unitarian Church in uh, East Melbourne, 1110. I one one zero Gray Street, East Melbourne. So it would be good if you could come. That will start at four o'clock in the afternoon, and also uh, come to PASA meeting. We hold our meeting every first Friday of the month in the Trades Hall. Most of the time we we hold it in uh, a bathroom in Trades Hall. So come. Uh, we start at six thirty every first Friday of the month, and I would. I would welcome you all to come and attend our meeting so you can support also our campaign for human rights, you know, in the Philippines. Thank you so much, May, for joining us this morning. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. And really encourage listeners to get along to the forum that the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association is putting on this Saturday. You can find more details online. Brucer broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one Brucer Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Radio Suscríbete ahora. Metsukke Tsek Radio I Gairanin, Boratain Guda Melbumi Hai Kaotin, Hima Artanakrovetsek Iper Trisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices... Aboriginal voices are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. 
You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. And even though subscriber drive was last week, still absolutely encourage all listeners out there, if you haven't already, to call up the station or jump online and subscribe and support your local community radio station. Up next, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Vicky Sentis, who is a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Law, UNSW in Sydney, and convener of the Police Powers Clinic at Redfern Legal Centre. Good morning, Vicky. Hi, Max. How's it going? Yeah, really well. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure. So to jump straight in, um, we asked you to speak with us this morning about some recent findings from an investigation into the New South Wales Police's suspect target management plan. What is that? Can you give listeners a bit of an overview? So the suspect target management plan, which I'll just shorten to STMP, or as um, many Aboriginal people refer to, the stomp, because that's what it feels like to be on it, you're being stomped. So what it is in police terms, they see it as a pre-crime anti-recidivism tool where it's effectively this secret list. It's been around for actually 20 years, which is really horrifying. And if you had ever committed a crime in the past, or even if you haven't committed a crime but you've come to police attention, and we all know what that means, particularly for First Nation peoples, it's you know it's a police measure uh, of your suspicion, i.e. the number of move-on directions, the number of stop and search, the amount of time you're on the police records we've found gets you on this list. Once you're on the list, then police engage in intensive monitoring and surveillance of you. Um, Police think uh, it gives them the power to engage with you, to um, ask you what you're doing, where you're going and to often stop and search you, turn up to your house all hours of the night. Um, So it's the idea of it from the state's perspective is that if you disrupt and undermine people's everyday lives, then it's going to deter them from committing crimes in the future. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of this has come to light over the past, you know, weeks and months, um, but there was a report that was done that I believe you were sort of involved with. Um, can you let us know about sort of the, 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 the background of how we got here? How do we, um, yeah. you know, as the public sort of now we, we know about what's going on more so? Yeah. So a number of community legal centres, including the Aboriginal Legal Service, um, PIAC, the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, and a bunch of other community advocates, and community groups were involved in a group called the Youth Justice Coalition um, in New South Wales, which has been around for around 30 years, advocating around justice issues, particularly for young people. Um, you know, we're continuing to get clients who were repeatedly, who were like particularly young people who had hundreds and hundreds of interventions from the police on their police file. Um, for really minor things, usually minor offending, and of course, you know, kids with kind of, you know, more serious violence offences as well. But not being able to work out what is this? Why are they constantly targeted in this really systematic way? Now, obviously, um, you know, uh, First Nations people, poor people, working class people have been targeted um, by the police since the word dot. But what we were seeing was something incredibly systematic. Um, and far more organised rather than simply based on, you know, the older kind of colonial sort of method of, um, you know, visibility in public space. And so we started doing some research on this collectively with all the community legal centres and um, we pieced together 
together through people's files and people's experiences from the ground up a picture of what the stomp was in practice because we were trying through FOI and court processes to expose this program um, to make the policy and the risk instruments that they use because there's some kind of algorithm that they use where based on alleged risk factors, you know, like whether you've got offending family, offended in the past, but also the police crime priorities for their local area determines that there's been lots of robberies in the area. Um, they're going to try and create a profile of people who they think might create robberies in the future. So we released this report in 2017 and argued that the stomp should be abolished. Um, and we made a recommendation that the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission, which is the police watchdog in New South Wales, investigate the police because we were saying um, it was serious agency misconduct, serious agency maladministration. And the, surprisingly, the LEC took on our recommendation and they spent the last, I guess, two and a half years investigating and they've just released the interim report. A lot of what they say in terms of the findings reiterates what we say and they're pretty, pretty harsh condemnation of the police. Um, they find that it's an oppressive regime, that it's an organised kind of basis for surveillance and monitoring and that the um, majority of the interactions are really coercive. What um, their, their recommendations, however, in my view, um, don't go far enough and they don't match the findings. So uh, they recommend that you know, th the police obviously sat on the report for a couple of months and said, Look, don't worry, nothing to see here, we'll fix it all up. We've got a new version of the STOMP, STOMP 3, and we're trialling it out in places like Mount Druitt. I um, mean, sort of, you know, working class areas and other places where there's um, a lot of First Nations people live and we'll test it out and we'll make it more positive. So, you know, we say that's not good enough, that the evidence is that the stomp absolutely should be abolished and that there are so many amazing um, Aboriginal community controlled projects, um, self-determination projects that are going on around New South Wales and the rest of the country um, that show that, you know, systems of organised oppression and organised harassment like this have no place, um, you know, in modern Australia. Mm. And I want to get to some of those community-driven initiatives in just a moment. But first up, you know, we're broadcasting um, from 3CR down in Wurundjeri country in so-called Victoria. I'm wondering, is the stomp unique to New South Wales or are there systematised programs um, across, you know, the police around this continent? Look, I think that there's versions of it everywhere. Um, you know, my understanding, and I know that some research is sort of happening um, in Victoria around the version, there is a version of the stomp in Victoria, um, but the police there sort of frame it more as a kind of uh, positive inverted commas and... Um, but is, there are certainly forms of targeting in every state. Um, I don't know the details of them, and it's because they are deliberately secretive. So they get classed as intelligence tools, and it's virtually impossible um, to challenge, you know, those exclusions from FOI and, and you know, we've used the courts. But certainly, I'd encourage, um, you know, people who are involved, you know, in advocacy and activism in the justice system to um, dig deeper and ask those questions. 
And you mentioned before, Vicky, some of the community-based initiatives that are, you know, responding to, you know, I guess, yeah, that are, that are advocating for, um, you know, alternatives to policing because, you know, we all know that we don't actually need policing and the violence of policing in our communities. Can you speak to some of those um, those initiatives? Yeah, so there's quite a few, and, that, and that's, that's precisely it. So communities are saying, we don't want to stomp. You know, we, we, we're working, we've got solutions around, um, you know, reducing the footprint of policing. So, um, there's, you know, Just Reinvestment, um, which is, you know, a project that the Aboriginal Legal Service is heavily involved in, have been running great programs out in Burke where, um, you know, the community are involved in basically intervening agreements with the police instead of kind of going out and targeting kind of um, young people, they'll leave it to the community to meet up and kind of do work on country um, and, you know, do sort of culturally appropriate kind of um, healing and engagements with young people. So that's where there's kind of clear agreements with the police. It's really hard for community to get those agreements in the first place because, you know, the experience has been that police and other state institutions obviously haven't been listening that's a really kind of profoundly amazing uh, program that the community in Burke have set up. There's other projects out in Western Sydney um, around Walgert, led by the Darawa Elders Group, which are trying to um, build up the self-determination and the capacity of the community around um, employment, health, um, education. They're seeing um, the trajectories around poor health and particularly the education where there's like poor education outcomes and then the education sector uses the police um, and the kids get excluded from school and all of a sudden they find themselves on the stomp. Um, so they're doing really amazing work there to kind of negotiate with the police, with the community, like big community forums, um, people standing up talking about their experience uh, and, and making demands for... for for new systems to kind of suspend um, targeted policing like the, the stomp in their community. So there's time to trial community ways of doing things. And, you know, all across New South Wales, like, you know, we've been talking to um, First Nations community who see firsthand um, the violence and the um, extension of intergenerational trauma that this form of over-policing causes um, and you know they they're having negotiations with the police straight up just saying can you stop can you take our kids off this thing um, and that's translating into big community consultations like you know in different communities across New South Wales mm. to not only advocate directly but to put in place um, trial different community projects um, to say, you know, stay away from our kids. And there's amazing research that's been done by First Nations researcher, like at the UTS. Absolutely. Um, and Indigenous you, learning, yeah. <laughs> so sorry, we're going to have to wrap up there. Um, but thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning to let us know about New South Wales Police's suspect target management plan, the STOMP, which I guess to sum up for listeners who might be tuning in is, you know, business as usual in the sense that it targets First Nations people, people of colour and poor people, but is a much more systematised and covert version of that. The findings of a report have come out recently. You can check it out more online. Thank you so much, Vicky, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Max. 
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellows learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. You're on 3CR, Thursday breakfast, 8.55am with me, Max. It is 20 past 8 at the moment and up next we're joined by Joshua Badge who's a queer writer and activist in NAM and philosopher at Deakin University who's joining us this morning to talk about the reporting, well, I wouldn't even call it reporting, um, the, the articles that have been in the Australian around um, linking trans young people to the coronavirus epidemic. Good morning, Josh. Morning, Max. Thank you for having me. So, just to jump straight in there, can you give listeners a bit of an overview about these really horrible um, pieces that the Australian's been putting out? Yeah, so throughout uh, 2019, there was this kind of um, steady stream of what I would characterise as anti-trans articles coming out of the Australian and other News Corp uh, mastheads. Um, initially, it started around uh, issues around sports inclusion um, and some uh, international uh, examples of um, trans people butting heads with conservatives particularly. But then um, around the October-August period, it began to pick up steam um, and momentum uh, to the extent that the Australian was publishing, on average, at least uh, one uh, anti-trans article a day. Um, and in practice, what that meant is that sometimes they were publishing two or three articles a day um, that were extremely hostile, filled with misinformation, um, and just you know, generally quite unpleasant. 
And then uh, more recently, uh, the that theme has uh, tapered off a little bit, um, so it's not quite... Uh, you know, one article a day uh, in 2020, um, but that hostility um, is still there and has turned, uh, you know, I'm thinking of this article in particular uh, where the author makes uh, draws a comparison between coronavirus and uh, trans young people. Um, you know, it, it's quite um, accurate, it's quite bitter, it's, it's um, very, very uh, poisonous in its tone and its intent. Mm. And I think that's such an important sort of point of context to start with is, you know, this, this recent article, while it might be the, the reason why we, you know, asked you to join us on air this morning, it's not out of the blue. It is coming out of, you know, a very long history of um, mm. transphobic content mm. that the Australian and other mastheads have been putting out. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for listeners who might have, I guess, yeah, glanced at this, um, like had the misfortune of seeing this article um, in the paper the other day, you know, a lot of a lot of what it's talking about is based on this so-called social contagion theory. Um, mm-hmm. you know, can you let us know? You know, you've done some really great writing around like why that has been, you know, debunked and isn't, you mm-hmm. know, isn't a thing. <laughs> can you let us know a bit mm-hmm. more about that? Yeah. So, um, social contagion uh, theory, in um, air quoting, um, it refers to the idea that. Um, young people particularly um, are, are made trans um, by uh, exposure to social media, particularly um, social media platforms like um, Tumblr or Twitter. Um, and the idea is that, you know, kind of um, shadowy activists or, or other trans people or other queer people are essentially making kids gay, uh, making kids trans. Um, and so it, it comes out of a very, very old uh, homophobic trope going back, you know, even before um, the 80s, the 70s, um, to the idea that, um, you know, uh, being gay or being queer was unnatural and the result usually of sexual trauma. And so the way that queer people essentially, quote-unquote, made other queer people was by abusing them or coercing them into um, becoming queer. Um, the, the more recent strain of, of this idea of social contagion theory comes from um, a, an academic paper released in 2018 um, around um, the uh, process of uh, the presentation of uh, transness in terms of when people um, begin to uh, realise or say that they're trans and tried to link this, uh, as I said, to exposure to social media. Um, However, that particular paper um, was extremely contentious um, and uh, was retracted post-publication, heavily edited, um, but it kind of uh, kicked uh, the ball rolling, so to speak, uh, on this particular trend. So it's been seized on by um, particularly uh, conservative or far-right outlets as the kind of basis for this idea. However, uh, numerous medical bodies have, uh, have uh, explicitly explained that there's no credibility to this idea, there's no evidence for it, um, and all uh, the, the paper has been essentially discredited uh, numerous times. Um, there's not really uh, anyone who is an expert in, in health or trans health that's really willing to put their name to it um, because there's just no reason to believe that it's true. Mm. And in terms of the timing of this article, it seems um, 
somewhat, you know, uncanny or well-timed in the sense of, you know, we're starting to have more conversations again about the religious discrimination bill and, you know, Parliament sitting again. Do you think there might be any link between um, between this, this recent article and that sort of, that context? Yeah, I think that's definitely something to keep in mind in terms of the effect that it's having. I think that in terms of timing, it makes more sense maybe to uh, look backwards slightly in the sense that during uh, the uh, same-sex marriage postal survey, there was a really concerted campaign from um, various no outlets, and I'm thinking of places like um, the Australian Christian Lobby, for example, as well as senior government figures, to use uh, trans people as a weapon in the debate to try to scare, you know, middle-class white suburban voters into voting no. You know, if you say yes to marriage, then you're saying yes to this. And what the Yes campaign failed to do adequately, I think, is to was to combat that transphobia that was extremely apparent at the time. And so the effect now is that uh, homophobia has lost its social license. You know, even the most conservative outlets have realised that it's simply not acceptable anymore and that they will lose readers if they publish overtly homophobic material. Which is not to say that homophobia has simply disappeared in the media or in general society, but it's become more subtle, um, more graded, and has find, found different ways of expressing itself. However, at the same time, uh, because uh, that transphobia in the campaign, I think, wasn't combated well, um, everyone <laughs> in these media institutions has the very clear impression that transphobia does have a social license, that it is acceptable to debate the rights, the equality uh, and um, the humanity of trans people, uh, which is, of course, not the case. Um, but that's the idea that they have because of that. And certainly uh, that will tie into um, the kind of extremely discriminatory aspects of the Religious Discrimination Bill. Uh, many aspects of the bill um, seem quite targeted at trans people in particular in terms of uh, refusing trans affirmative health care um, and not having to refer them on, as well as uh, definitely uh, refusing businesses refusing services to trans people, as well as um, Christian people, you know, refusing to hire trans people, so on and so forth. Um, so without getting into the, the nuts and bolts of the religious discrimination bill, um, certainly I think that that, uh, that this campaign will tie into and affect that. And I think it's really important to remember, a lot of people say, you know, for example, not many people read The Australian. Well, you know, thousands of people do. And importantly, a lot of Australia's political class do. So uh, I recall um, one article in particular where the one of the authors of The Australian essentially bragged that they had influenced coalition policy at the state level. And certainly um, thinking about Pauline Hanson's recent introduction of a bill into Parliament, uh, the so-called anti-children indoctrination bill. Um, definitely some of that campaign has seeped into uh, her thinking, um, which is now, you know, proposing policy which could be talking about uh, trans people or gay people outlawed. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely some important ramifications there. Absolutely. And... 
listeners, we hopefully will be we're doing an interview next week on the show around the importance of trans affirmative healthcare. So, Joshua, in our last you know forty seconds that we have, I just wanted to ask mm-hmm. you about what listeners can actually do, you know, in order to both call for accountability, like greater accountability for media outlets, and to you know voice their support and concern. Absolutely. So in terms of, uh, you know, um, combating this in media outlets, you can write a complaint to the Australian Press Council. You can go to their website and they have some health instructions on how to do that. It takes roughly five to ten minutes, so it's uh, not, you know, very onerous. If uh, you see that kind of transphobic reporting, you can submit a complaint to them. Amazing. Thank you so much, Joshua, for joining us this morning. No worries. Thank you for having me. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, and that is all we have time for this morning. We look forward to seeing you again next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.